Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we'll meet a man who struggled with substance use disorder. Now, he's a recovery coach. It feels amazing. I look at it like I've taken so much from this world. You know what I mean? It's my time to give back. And we'll meet a woman who started a farm and culinary training program to help people in recovery. I think the success is compassion and creating that environment that's calm, that lets that student know that they are loved and that we are here to help them move forward. And childhood friends who first started singing together 70 years ago show why it's never too late to begin again. There's a storm across the valley, clouds are rolling, the afternoon... You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Southern West Virginia has been hit over the last two decades by declining coal jobs, depression, and the opioid crisis. People have had to get creative to try and overcome this combination of challenges. We begin today's show with a story about a business that's getting national attention for what it's doing to help. Fruits of Labor is part farm, part cafe and bakery, and part training program. And it consciously hires people in recovery or at risk. Reporter Jessica Lilly has more. This is Roy Lynch III, or Chef Roy, whisking eggs. He's working with Chef Apprentice and Rupert native Isaac Skaggs. Learning with uh, Chef Roy, he's teaching me so many different things, the way to cook, uh, different types of foods, different styles, different cuisines, and really just the basics, you know, things such as knife cuts, how to, how to make a roux, all the basic things you need to build on to be able to, you know, make a really, really wonderful meal. The meals here are served to customers of Fruits of Labor, a cafe and bakery in Greenbrier County. And um, what kind of dressing? But Fruits of Labor is more than just a place to dine. It's a nationally certified culinary and agricultural training center, and it supports people who are recovering from addiction. Tammy Jordan founded the program, which includes a farm. So we have all of our agricultural training up there. We have mushroom cultivation, maple syrup production, all of our field and floriculture production, as well as our orchard and berry systems. Jordan started her career at the United States Department of Agriculture. About 21 years ago, on the side, she started growing foods for local businesses, which grew into a catering business, then a flower business. After juggling both jobs for about seven years, she walked away from the federal job with benefits and set up shop in a building in Raynell. That's when she encountered the heartache that so many communities have right now. Just tremendous issues with addiction. Uh, within the community. Still, it was a faith-based mission trip in 2009 nearby that opened her eyes to the need to help those in recovery. I went to visit a lady in prison, in Alderson Prison, and what I saw was a sense of hopelessness in the eyes of the women as they passed by their large windows at the visitation room. And I went home and thought, you know, we have skill sets that we could train women coming out of prison. So she decided to expand the mission of her business. To be able to bring an educational training program that focuses on recovery as well as prevention and to have a community. To folks passing by the Fruits of Labor storefront in Raynell, the business looks like a small cafe or restaurant. Inside, every employee from the chef to the server is invested in recovery. Some of the team members are living with substance use disorder. Others, like Kachina Skaggs, enrolled in the at-risk Young Adult Addiction Prevention Program. On this day, she's helping to package and stock pepperoni rolls. And here, no matter what, you have a purpose. Before she came to Fruits of Labor, she had lived at a children's residential center. I went into foster care when I was 14, and I ended up at Davis Stewart down in Lewisburg. When I was 16, Tammy Jordan asked me and four other girls, three from Davis Stewart and one from Greenbrier West, to come here for a four-day training program. 
And after those four days, I knew I wanted to be in industry in food service. And it just so happened when I was applying for colleges, Tammy asked me to come back to Fruits of Labor to work with her. While at Davis-Stewart, Kachina could see why some kids turned to illegal drugs. Because they don't get to go to an actual foster home, they feel unwanted, and because of that, I have seen kids myself turn to drugs. Kachina learned about the food industry, like how to prep food in the back, but found more than job training. She found a family. I am actually Tammy's foster daughter, and it, her and her husband gave me a home, and it's, it's amazing. Fruits of Labor's business model combines elements of culinary arts, service, agriculture, education, and even housing to serve the community. While getting hands-on experience, students also have the opportunity to earn associate's degrees. But the key to the model, Jordan says, is this social mission layer. I think the success is compassion and expectation of success and creating that environment that's calm, that um, is encouraging, that really absolutely lets that student that's coming in know that they are loved and that we are here to help them move forward in their life and that we're 100% invested. After hosting the program in her business for about 10 years, more than 125 students have successfully completed the program, earning various certificates. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jessica Lilly in Raynell. Next, we head to the northern panhandle of West Virginia for a look at another recovery program. This one in Wetzel County has seen success, but it also faces an uncertain future. Its funding is set to expire this summer. Reporter Liz McCormick brings us the story, produced by Ella Jennings and Chuck Klein. Every rural community throughout America and big cities has been hit by what is happening with opioid and other, other, uh, other dependency issues. Not all communities are comprehensively getting together and trying to address those issues. So I think we are, are really fortunate in having that opportunity and having uh, these good people decide that they were going to take action. That was Sharon Campbell, the Wetzel Tyler Chamber of Commerce Executive Director. In April, she gathered with a group of about 30 people to celebrate the opening of a brand new recovery resource center in New Martinsville, West Virginia. The space houses a satellite office for Youth Services Systems, which is a nonprofit organization based in Wheeling that provides social services to at-risk youth and their families. The center also serves as the new home of Take Action Wetzel County, which is a nonprofit consisting of community members who provide services and resources to anyone seeking help for substance use disorder. Greg Matthews is a peer recovery coach for Take Action and a member of their post-overdose response team, or PORT. When someone in the community has a non-fatal overdose, first responders or loved ones of the individual will reach out to PORT. Then a PORT team member will follow up with that person within 72 hours to offer resources to begin the recovery process. If you OD, somebody will show up and offer you a detox and then maybe a 28 day and that's like the beginning stages of recovery you know what I mean and then get you familiar with NA and A meetings uh, provide you with shelter uh, food you know what I mean stuff like that because I was pretty rough out there you know what I mean and this it's a game changer around here. This is all possible due to a federally funded program called Project Rebound. In 2019, Workforce West Virginia received $10 million from the Department of Labor through the Opioid Disaster Recovery Dislocated Workers Grant to create employment opportunities for dislocated or unemployed workers who lost their job as a result of the opioid crisis. These jobs are all in the field of combating the opioid epidemic, thus benefiting both the individual and their community. The Northern Panhandle Workforce Development Board was awarded nearly $400,000 of the $10 million grant to create Project Rebound. 
This program trains and employs peer recovery coaches who use their lived experience of substance use disorder to guide people from active addiction into recovery. Last July, Project Rebound placed six peer recovery coaches at the Take Action Wetzel County Center, enabling them to greatly expand their overdose response efforts. If it weren't for peer recovery programs, Greg says he would not be sitting here today. Since he was 12 years old, Greg has battled a substance use disorder. He grew up in poverty, surrounded by family members using substances. For decades, he bounced back and forth between mental health facilities, jails, and prisons. It was very traumatic, a lot of these places. I mean, it was it was uh, rough being raised. I mean, I put it like just raised by animals, you know what I mean, in, a, in an animalistic environment. Some of the stuff I've seen is... You know, stuff you don't want to see, you know what I mean? Especially as an adolescent, just your mind's forming. You don't know how to handle situations, and then your, like, survival instinct kicks in, and it rewires your brain. Last year, Greg underwent a huge mental switch. Sitting behind bars, he saw a future he could never imagine before. This time I really got to writing, reading, drawing again, and really focusing on what I want to do with the rest of my life. You know what I mean? I don't want to live like this no more. Recovery isn't always linear, and Greg's path to sobriety came with relapses. But his relationships with peer recovery coaches didn't allow the setbacks to hinder his progress. They knew what he was experiencing and used empathy when others couldn't. Normal people can't really relate to the stuff that we've done. You know what I mean? And I'm not really going to go to some professionals and tell them some of the stuff that I've done. Now, Greg gets to be there for others caught in the same situation. Unlike other employers, Project Rebound looked past his extensive criminal background of nonviolent, drug-related charges. Being a recovery coach for Project Rebound has allowed Greg to not only obtain a sustainable income after exiting prison, but to make a difference in the way only someone like Greg can. It feels amazing. I look at it like... I've taken so much from this world. You know what I mean? It's my time to give back. 2017, Take Action has been working out of the basement of St. Paul United Methodist Church in Payton City, West Virginia. Now they have their own home base in the new Martinsville Recovery Resource Center. However, their progress is at risk. Take Action is facing two financial dilemmas. Project Rebound funding ends on June 30th which means the peer recovery coaches are in jeopardy of losing their jobs. And in one year, the program will need to find funding to pay for their office space, as Youth Services Systems is currently giving them the space for free due to their ongoing collaborations. For now, Take Action and the new Martinsville City Council are actively looking for funding to continue providing salaries for the coaches and to pay for rent and utilities. Greg, an avid writer, is turning his pen towards grant writing, but at this point, a funding solution has not been found. Despite this, the recovery coaches at Take Action Wetzel County say they aren't going to stop. They'll continue volunteering, although to a lesser degree. Still, their future plans are big, bright, and can't be dampened. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Liz McCormick. Despite the program's effectiveness, Take Action is looking at a financial dilemma in the months ahead. The three-year grant that helped create Project Rebound ends on June 30th. Program staff in the new Martinsville City Council are looking for new funding sources. Coming up, we'll hear about a man who picked up his family's quilting tradition by learning from YouTube. Today's video, we are going to make your first quilt. It really helped me through it. And I think in a way, it, it's like having somebody there showing you how to do this. That story and more after a break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs, to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Our next story takes us to East Liverpool, Ohio. 
once known as the pottery capital of the world for its dishware and ceramics factories. These days, the industry is mostly gone, but pottery is still central to the town's identity, and locals are committed to passing that legacy down to a new generation. Capri Cafaro visited East Liverpool and has this story. East Liverpool sits on the banks of the Ohio River. The abundance of clay made it a perfect place for ceramic makers from England to settle in the United States back in the 1840s. By the beginning of the 20th century, more than half of all dinnerware in America was made here. People usually don't realize that every kind of pottery, china, that was made in the United States was also made here in East Liverpool. That's Donna Gray. I meet her at the local Museum of Ceramics in a converted post office. She and her husband, William, are avid collectors of ceramics made in their hometown. We started collecting Harker pottery uh, on our honeymoon because I saw this beautiful teapot in a junk shop, and it was just plain gray, but gray is our last name. So I said, oh, got to have that teapot, and I turned it over. It's Harker Pottery. My husband's grandmother and his mother both worked there. At one time, East Liverpool was home to more than 200 pottery factories. Now only two major dinnerware manufacturers operate in the town. But everyone I meet in East Liverpool seems to have some connection to ceramics. Even the school mascot is called Potter Pete. He's a giant kiln on feet, so kids have the connection too. I'm Emma Rose Kurtz. I'm 14 and I did Clay Academy in 2019, but I have been here uh, doing the clay programs for years. Clay Academy is a camp run by the Museum of Ceramics. It teaches young people how to throw clay, but also focuses on the importance of pottery to this community. It was uh, just a week of doing not only creating pieces of pottery, but also going and visiting, you know, the kiln. I think we went to the um, cemetery, too, to look up some old potters. Well, one of the things that um, I did was purposefully teach the history alongside of the process, the technique. I mean, like, every day. That's Emma's teacher, Barry Archer. I spoke to her via Zoom from Florida. She says she learned about pottery almost by osmosis. A family is the Smith family from Taylor Smith and Taylor pottery. As a child, if, if my mother was busy and it was a weekend and my dad had to leave and go over to the pottery, then he usually took us with him. As for her student, Emma, pottery has been a part of her life for as long as she can remember. As a little kid, you know, just making pottery and having a childhood where I grew up with pottery all around me. My grandparents have a huge collection, one of the biggest collections that I know of. Remember Donna Gray and her husband, William? Those are Emma's grandparents. So like, it's really awesome to be able to grow up with that and grow up with the um, culture. <laughs> it's a culture that's attracting a whole new group of pottery makers. In recent years, some have been moving to East Liverpool because of ceramics and the potential to grow the art scene here. People like Kim Holemaker. I knew I wanted to open my own studio in my own home where I could offer classes. But she ditched that idea for a better option. Instead of doing it out of my home, I'm going to be doing it out of the Museum of Ceramics in Crockery City. I mean, just, it's like, wow, I feel like a little kid. Kim plans to offer classes for both children and adults. We're going to be offering uh, throwing on the potter's wheel. In fact, they're getting a couple more wheels at least. And hand building, which simply implies you don't use a wheel, but you can make all sorts of amazing pottery hand built. Like they used to, back when this was Crockery City. Kim has high hopes for the East Liverpool ceramic scene. I have this wild dream, so wild. There is a place in central Ohio called Yellow Springs, which is very much an arts community. I would love to see something like that here. We have so much to offer. Her dream isn't so wild. Before COVID hit, East Liverpool was already on the path toward turning this industrial city into a place geared towards the arts. Galleries, a community theater, and craft breweries were all popping up on the main street. Making ceramics is much more than what happens on the factory floor. It's a creative process, and that creativity makes East Liverpool's future as an arts hub much more than a dream. Capri reported that story as part of our Inside Appalachia Folkways project. The project reports on arts and culture in the region. Our next story 
takes us to North Carolina. Driving around the mountains and foothills, you may have come across a quilt block painted on the side of a barn or a house. Despite their name, barn quilts can be found on just about any building, not just barns. There are at least 300 in western North Carolina alone. And a lot give insight to the people and places around them. Folkways reporter Rachel Moore has the story. A few years ago, Candace Wingo and her husband Larry left Texas. They moved to a small community in Haywood County, North Carolina. And it wasn't long before Candace Wingo commissioned a local artist to make a quilt block. I've always wanted a barn quilt, and I wanted to do something that would honor the Carolinas being here. And so I picked the Carolina Lily. A barn quilt is typically a 4 by 4 wooden square. They usually riff on a traditional quilt pattern. Sometimes they nod to a person's or place's history. Sometimes people put them up just because they think they look good. In each one, there could be about 40 hours of painting, dozens of layers of paint between all the colors, and the work of multiple community members. Over the years, quilt blocks have become more and more popular. The art form started in Appalachian, Ohio in 2001, but if you look hard enough, the barn quilts can be found just about anywhere in the U.S. Sometimes they're painted by individuals, but now many people, especially in western North Carolina, commission the quilt blocks from local artists, like Candace Wingo did. A former designer herself, Wingo knew she wanted to be involved with the process of designing and painting her block. With the help of quilt block designer Lauren Medford, Wingo's dreams of having a quilt block grace her bright red barn came true. She was so familiar with it all, and she's actually did the research on has this design been duplicated? And so she would send me her suggestion, and then I would tweak it. So it was a real fun group effort with her. Wingo and Medford designed an 8-by-8-foot block, the largest quilt block Medford has ever worked on. The Carolina Lily is an adaptation of a traditional quilt pattern. Wingo's block features eight Carolina Lily flowers, four on the outer perimeter and four on the inside. The red flowers have angular petals made of triangles and trapezoids. Wingo said the design was inspired by her surroundings, her bright red barn and the lush green hills that surround her farm. It took months to come together, but Wingo knew she would be in good hands with Medford. Medford is a Haywood County native, and she's no stranger to quilt blocks or quilting. So my great-grandmother, um, she made quilts her entire life, and then uh, my grandmother kind of fell out of the sewing tradition, and my mom didn't either. When some of Medford's great-grandmother's quilts were passed down to her, she decided to take a quilting class herself, and she fell in love. I made my first quilt, and that was really fun, and it is very mathematical and technical, which I enjoy because I like hard lines and graphic um, aesthetics, so it was kind of a good fit for me. For Medford, working with unique designs is gratifying, and she appreciates the connections people often have to the blocks they commission. For example, she remembers one block that was designed in honor of a community member. This lady did cross-stitch, and her sister and husband had us make a design based on her cross-stitch, and it's a very intricate block. And there are others. A Haywood County dentist has a quilt block with a repeating rifle pattern outside his office. It's a nod to his family's rifle-making traditions. And then there's one quilt block that depicts a man underwater. It's called Dead Man in the Creek, and it was designed to remember the namesake of the Fines Creek community in Haywood County. The man's name was Vinette Fines, and he drowned in a nearby creek in the late 1700s. It's kind of morbid, but barn quilts haven't always told stories in such literal ways. In the beginning, most of the barn quilts featured traditional geometric shapes and patterns, like stars. But over the years, people have gotten more and more expressive with quilt blocks. It's just being part of the community and, and the history and the culture. A lot of our quilt patterns are very traditional, yet we have people who come in and design for specific quilt blocks. This is Linda Lapp, a volunteer quilt block painter for the Haywood County Arts Council. 
As a quilter, she was drawn to the program because it gave her a whole new way to interact with the medium. When I saw this painted on wood, it was like, oh, it's just an extension of, of quilting, putting patterns together. Part of the fun of having a barn quilt is that the organizations in charge of quilt block programs usually create maps and guides, or trails, for people to follow in a certain area. Quilt enthusiasts, tourists, and anyone else can drive or walk along the quilt trails to see how people express themselves through the wooden blocks. And ultimately, community members can be as creative or traditional as they want when they commission a block, says Medford. It could be like, I just like the color blue, I want a blue star, or it could be really meaningful. There's not really an overarching theme other than quilt blocks speak to Appalachia and craft and tradition. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Rachel Moore in Haywood County, North Carolina. Rachel Moore is one of our Folkways reporters. And y'all, you really should see some of these barn quilts in western North Carolina. We've got photos on our website, wvpublic.org. So, we just talked about quilts being painted on barns, but that art form comes from the actual tradition of people making quilts for their beds. For his day job, Shane Foster is an optometrist in Athens, Ohio, but lately, he's also become a quilter, with help from a pack of friends he's never actually met. Folkways reporter Liz Paul has the story. Shane Foster is one of those folks who always had strong memories of quilts during his childhood. It's just something that was always in my family. My uh, great-grandmothers on my mom's side, both were quilters. They had done it for years, uh, decades, and uh, I always had a quilt on my bed growing up. So I just assumed that's what everybody had. I didn't, you know, when I grew up and learned that there were like down comforters and things like this, I I had never really experienced that because we just always used a quilt that had been passed down from um, one of our great-grandmothers. As time passed, the matriarchs and Shane's family had stopped making quilts, either through lack of interest or passing away, and Shane realized that the tradition might die out within his family. I've said for years that I wanted, I wanted someone in our family to start quilting. But no one did, until Shane himself contracted COVID in 2021. Shane recovered well, with the exception of some lingering post-COVID symptoms, like anxiety and high blood pressure. His family doctor suggested he find something that would allow him to de-stress. So he began the journey of learning how to quilt. There was just one problem. Shane had no guidance from his grandmothers to teach him their craft. The solution? Today's video, we are going to make your first quilt. YouTube. I did watch some YouTube videos uh, to figure out what were the techniques it really helped me through it. And I think in a way, it, it's like having somebody there showing you how to do this. And I'm going to line up my edges with that line. Like if I had learned from my grandmother or my great-grandmother saying, no, this is how you do this. So there's no need to backstitch with piecing, quilting. It's, um, you know, on demand, and it's in a way that is um, easily accessed by anyone. Shane's story got me wondering, if you learn an art from YouTube, is it still folk art? We always use new technologies. If a new technology emerges, it is against human nature to not wonder if maybe it could make your life a little bit easier. Zoe Van Buren is the Folk Life Director at the North Carolina Arts Council, and she spent a lot of time thinking about the ways people pass on traditional practices. It's very romantic to kind of think that every tradition bearer has or should come to their practice through the same route and that that route always has to start with somebody in their immediate community or family kind of sitting them down and having that knee-to-knee teaching moment. Zoe says today's practitioners grew up with the internet at their fingertips. She says they'll eventually become our elder culture keepers. We had a very cool project at the North Carolina Arts Council um, that is ongoing, but it's... uh, It was the Millennial Traditional Artists Project, and one of the big questions was, what do we do for and with the digital generation? And how how does the access to digital technology, to mass communications, to YouTube, to social media, change the way that we talk about um, traditional arts and how they're taught, how they're learned? Some of the anxiety around using YouTube in a traditional learning context is, what are, what are you not learning? 
And as folklorists, you know, we we are more interested in sort of the conversation around it rather than coming up with a definitive answer itself. And the answer isn't isn't the thing that matters. The thing that matters is that we are worried about our culture. We're worried about our practice. We're worried about knowledge. We're worried about what the next generation knows. So it doesn't matter if we land on one definitive answer. What matters is that we care enough to sort of debate it. And besides, the digital world has strong connections with the real world. Just look at Shane Foster. He learned how to quilt from YouTube videos, but that knowledge has allowed him to connect with a real-life quilter, his great-grandmother. She passed away many years ago, but Shane's now working with fabric that she cut out for a quilt that she never finished. And now I'm taking those pieces and I'm honoring her memory and doing it in the way that she intended, but also putting my own twist on it by using some fabrics that I chose. And so I did come together with this amalgam of different uh, different fabrics to make it kind of a combination work between, between her and me. Now that Shane has many projects under his belt, he's looking forward to exploring the quilting medium as a source of artistic expression. All, of course, with a nod to his teachers, both great-grandma and YouTube. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Liz Paul. You can listen to more stories from our Folkways Project on our website, wvpublic.org. The Tug Fork River straddles the border between Kentucky and West Virginia. The mine wars were fought nearby, so local tourism groups have dubbed the river the Bloody Mingo Tug Fork Water Trail. Visitors are invited to kayak, float, or fish. The Tug Fork River recently earned the designation of a West Virginia flatwater trail. But tourism relies on the river staying clean. Jessica Lilly recently spoke with the people who are cleaning up the Tug Fork, one tire at a time. It's a sunny summer day, and crews of volunteers are on the Tug Fork River. Some, like John Burchett, are pulling up tires from the bottom of the river and loading them onto a boat connected to an amphibious vehicle. A lot of these tires have white walls on them, so you don't see anybody driving around with white walls today. Uh, that's back in the, at least the 80s. Some of these tires are half, half the sidewall is a white wall, so that's going back to the 40s and 50s. How the tires got onto the river is kind of a mystery, or at least a known secret. Back in the day, before there was regulation, before there was really any enforcement of what little regulation there was, the small gas stations, service stations, sold you some tires and then took your old ones out and threw them in the river. Uh, we think that's where the majority of them came from. Maybe they didn't know any better, or maybe they just didn't care enough. Uh, it, it's, it's a shame that we're having to clean up uh, what our, uh, I guess, the sins of our forefathers uh, we're cleaning up today. Tire cleanup isn't easy. It's intense physical labor that takes extensive collaboration between state agencies and volunteers. It's taken thousands of mighty tugs to pull more than 5,000 tires out of the water so far. It's a mess, but, uh, but we're, we're, we're putting a dent in it. There's still thousands of tires in this river, several, several, several thousand, maybe hundreds of thousands of tires in this river. Burchett and other volunteers are hoping the work will pay off, not just for the health of the river, but for the economic future of the region. See, Burchett grew up in Williamson in Mingo County. It's one of the towns along the Tug Fork River. He remembers the boom times of the coal industry. We had a, a business district that was overflowing with business, with people. Today, the coal industry is, uh, has dropped off tremendously. Our downtown is suffering. Uh, we have empty storefronts and not a lot of people on the streets. As the jobs disappeared, population declined, and schools consolidated, Burchett says the town lost more than a way of life. So we lost our, a big part of our identity there. Mm. Uh, the Williamson Wolfpack was uh, played in the uh, state basketball championships on a regular basis, and we lost uh, a big part of our identity when we lost uh, Williamson High School. One part of this area's identity that wasn't lost was its history. 
in particular the infamous Hatfield and McCoy feud. Uh, the feud is over, but we still enjoy the, uh, the history of it. In recent years, that history has helped to draw tourists to the Hatfield and McCoy ATV trail system. Burchett is hoping to expand what he calls the Outdoor Adventure Amusement Park with the Tug Fork River. You can spend a day on the trails and then spend a day in the water. And it, uh, it keeps our tourists here for an extra day maybe gives them something to do, gives them another reason to come. Maybe they come for the river and then discover the, the trail system and want to go ride the trails. The Tug Fork River recently earned the designation of a West Virginia flatwater trail. It's called the Bloody Mingo Tug Fork Water Trail, and visitors are invited to kayak, float, or even fish. But volunteers like Burchett still have a lot of work to do. There are thousands of tires to pull from the river. The Tug Fork also remains on the West Virginia list of impaired waters the part in West Virginia, the whole length is impaired for fecal coliform. So usually you're getting that from sewage runoff or impaired septic systems or straight pipes. Um, It can also be indicative of a lot of um, livestock waste, but in our region that's usually not the case. Grace Williams is executive director of the Big Laurel Learning Center in Kermit. The center organizes environmental education programs for children in the summer. Williams is also part of a group that will be trained in both Kentucky and West Virginia to test and monitor the water quality. I think it'll be really key for our own knowledge. I kayak a lot. I kayak the Tug Fork. I've kayaked the Guyandot. And I didn't really know what I was getting into. So I hope that By doing this, I'll learn a little bit more, you know, firsthand the results that we get. The idea is to test the tributaries of the tug in order to gather more specific geographic information so work can be prioritized. The samples will be taken to a lab to be tested for E. coli, fecal coliform, and heavy metals. Then we know that it's going to be repairing septic systems and repairing sewage lines. Um, That's going to be the hard part is getting funding for that and getting people to do it. And a lot of times land is hard to put in a septic tank if you're really close to the water table or if you're really close to the river. Williams and the Friends of the Tug Fork River already have a plan. The group recently applied for a 501c3 status. The idea is once we are a nonprofit, we will better be able to get funding and grants that is going to need to go through a 501c3. For now, the group organizes through a Facebook page. Friends of the Tug Fork River is a group that connects on Facebook to organize events like the tire cleanup. Pete Runyon created the page about five years ago. I didn't realize the impact it made on our community because after we did that and pulled out those 2,321 tires, all the people started watching for things and jumping on board and helping us because they saw us trying to make a positive change in our area. For Runyon, part of that change means more recreational fishing on the Tug Fork River. People, instead of traveling away from here or some of the other places or lakes, now we just go out our back door. You come here on a weekend, you'll see all kinds of kayaks on this river, and you'll see people fishing almost daily. And when visitors arrive, Runyon hopes they see, well, a clean river. I want them to be able to look at this river and never know what its past looked like. I want them to look in this river and say, man, this is a pretty place because the beauty is all around us here. Living here all my life, I didn't realize this probably for decades. And now for the last probably 30 years, I've realized how beautiful this place really is. John Burchett says the cleanup efforts are about more than building an economy but also a sense of place, belonging, and new pride for the people in Williamson. We are trying to find ourselves, trying to figure out who we are. Tourism is something that we can latch on to right now until we can move on and, and find different things uh, to, for the community. We're struggling, but uh, every day we make a little bit of progress forward, and that's, that's the important thing is every day move forward. If we don't, uh, then we're going to be in trouble. Both John Burchett and Pete Runyon are trying to help other communities pursue West Virginia flatwater trail status. In December, they met with residents in McDowell County. Back in Mingo County, they plan to keep pulling tires out of the Tug Fork River. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jessica Lilly in Williamson.
Jessica produced that story for a series called West Virginia Water Trails. It's made possible in part by the National Coal Heritage Area Authority. As we get older, people tend to fall into patterns, and it feels like we're faced with a dwindling number of possibilities. But our next story shows that it's never too late to reconnect with old passions and start something new. Gene Snedeker shares the story of a band that formed in 1968, only to disband a few months later. But after more than a half century, and lives that took them in different directions, the four surviving bandmates found each other again. Four men in their mid-70s on a farm outside Beverly in Randolph County, West Virginia, having a great time playing music together. Two of the four, singer Blake Bogus and bass guitarist Edgar James, met more than 70 years ago. I am Blake Bogus. I am from Fairmont, West Virginia. I was very involved in the First Presbyterian Church where I met Edgar. We've known each other since we were about three in nursery school (laughs) and started singing together when we were probably five in a church choir. My name is Edgar Janes. I uh, first met Blake when I was in kindergarten in church. And we learned to sing in the church choir and we sang together through all 12 years. We were in Corlears, which is a Fairmont Senior High School choral group at the time. And there were 60 people chosen out of about 1,000. At West Virginia University, Blake met Nick Conger, a guitar player and the only member of the group not from West Virginia. My name is Nick Conger, and I was born in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and then my folks moved up north. So I basically grew up on the north shore of Long Island. My dad had gone to a military school in Virginia, Waynesboro, Virginia, called Fishburne Military School. So he thought it might be a good idea if I went. Interestingly, that's kind of what was the road for me to get to West Virginia because I was on the rifle team in high school, ended up being captain of the rifle team, and was looking for a, a school with a good rifle team. And WVU had a really, really good team even back then. That's also where I met Blake. We were fraternity brothers. It's good to be back home again. When Blake, Edgar, and Nick were seniors at WVU, they met another guitar player, Ed Bowes. I'm uh, Ed Bowes. I grew up in Charleston, West Virginia. I was a sophomore at WVU and was actually um, interviewing to pledge a fraternity. Blake Bogus was the first person I met. We became good friends and and just hit it off right away. It turned out Blake was a a singer, and he knew uh, Nick and Edgar, and they were both, as as probably they've told you, Blake, Blake and Edgar had known each other all their lives and had sung together. At this point, Ed fondly remembers the one bandmate who has passed away, but who remains an integral part of their story. I had a friend... Uh, Ray Ketchum, who was one of my old friends, dearest friends, who was actually in postgraduate school. Ray was a great banjo player. So the five of us kind of coalesced just to play music together. How we got the name of the band, we couldn't come up with a good name. We were actually sitting at the TJIF place everybody went on a Friday afternoon to drink beer and socialize staring at each other in the booth. And Nick looked over at an ad for prior beer. And he said, how about the prior five? That sounds good. And that's, that's all there was to it. But it was the spring of 1968, a turbulent time in U.S. history. The Vietnam War was raging. Martin Luther King was just assassinated. Civil unrest was common. Folk and rock music and protest songs were in the air. Edgar Jaynes. 
So we got together and we sang a few songs and we thought, gee, that's nice. We went over to the mountain lair. At the time it was the new one, the one they just built. And we were standing out there singing and playing. I was just standing there because I didn't have a bass. And uh, we saw the manager of the mountain lair come to the door and I said, quick, put your instruments away like we're leaving. So he put all the instruments away and we started to leave and he hurried over. And he wanted to know if we could sing at the mountain lair. Uh, we said, sure, we knew three songs. So in about two or three weeks, we put together, I think, 15 songs and, and uh, sang them. Now, we were the first local group to sing in the mountain lair. They've since had many local groups, but we were the first ones not to be hired from outside. Amazingly, someone recorded the very first Prior Five concert at the WVU mountain lair in 1968. These boys are all went to the university students, and we're kind of proud of them, and I'll say this, that uh, they are one of the best we had two or three weeks to learn enough to play two sets. We threw it all together and played this magical concert. With a mixture of folk, rock, pop, country, and bluegrass music, that night they wowed the audience at West Virginia University. Around that time was Bonnie and Clyde. So the movie Bonnie and Clyde came out, and Foggy Mountain Breakdown was the popular song from the movie Bonnie and Clyde. And Ray Ketchum, our banjo player, was just outstanding. We somehow pulled it off and then lost touch with each other. I was only a sophomore. The other guys were all seniors. They graduated, disappeared into their lives. And that was kind of the end of the story. After just a few weeks together, but it wasn't quite the end. After graduating from WVU, lead singer Blake Bogus joined the Navy and worked in intelligence. Later, he became a legislative assistant on Capitol Hill, then returned to Fairmont and ran a hospital there for most of his career. Today, Blake divides his time between a family farm west of Morgantown, West Virginia, and a home on Siesta Key, Florida. Bass guitarist Edgar James became a chemist and worked in corporate America, General Foods, Campbell Soup, and pharmaceutical companies. Today, in his so-called retirement, he teaches chemistry part-time at High Point University in North Carolina. Nick Conger, who played the lead guitar, became an Army intelligence officer, first in Chicago, then in Vietnam, then following graduate school, spent 30 years as a bank examiner for the federal government. In retirement, Nick finished a Ph.D., and taught at West Virginia Wesleyan in Buchanan, West Virginia, before retiring fully in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Guitarist and banjo player Ed Bose spent most of his career as an engineer with Dominion Power in Richmond. Today, he divides his time between homes in Richmond and Beverly, West Virginia. Banjo player Ray Ketchum went on to WVU Medical School became a psychiatrist, and practiced in Maine. He died in 2009. The men never forgot the group that briefly brought them together. About 50 years passed. Blake Bogus. Ed Bowes decided at some point to try to get a hold of us, and he finally got Nick through his being an alumni of Fishburn Academy. And the two of them actually met in Buchanan, and started playing together. And then immediately, Nick got a hold of Edgar and me and said, let's do it. By the summer of 2018, we were together practicing. Somebody got out an old playlist. Blake said, I've got the words. I said, what key is it in? And boom, it was like we had been together for 50 years. It is as though we had not been apart. So it's very, very familiar. It's warm, it's inviting. It's just fun to get back and sing with them again. Fifty years. It is like a miracle for us. My primary residence has been in West Virginia most of that 50 years. And I guess I'm the only one that has done that. 
We all met in West Virginia. I think all four of us feel as though that's where our roots are. That has played into our cohesiveness. And so we've been getting together periodically ever since. We met at a condo at the uh, Snowshoe Resort, and we went down to the uh, restaurant at the end of the Cass Mountain Railway and played a couple of sets there. And they've said we can come back any time. <laughs> but uh, because of the pandemic, we, we didn't get back. My friend Ray was, a, among many other things, a wonderful banjo player. and he, So he was the banjo player in this group. I was not. But um, as time went on, Ray taught me to play the banjo. And I now have his banjo. His daughter gave it to me when Ray passed away. So now I'm the banjo player for the prior five. And I try to, to play the way he did and when we're together, play the songs he played on the banjo that he played. So that, that is very meaningful to me and to the other guys. We said, let's keep doing this. And then now we're talking about possibly making a little CD for ourselves. So I guess it's never too late. You know, if you enjoy what you're doing, just keep doing it and feel blessed that you have that opportunity to do that. So I even kind of said, you know, we could have our farewell tour. <laughs> Start in Morgantown, and then Blake said, well, we could go to Fairmont, and then we could go to Charleston, and then we can go to Buchanan, and then we can go to Elkins and go to Cass. So we've already got our T-shirt. We're going to have T-shirts with all the little towns printed on it, and what's going to be our farewell tour. Hey, it's good to be back home again. And our one and only CD is going to be our greatest hit CD. So it's just so much fun. The camaraderie and the personality of the Prior Five, it's magical. It's really something special. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jean Snedeker. For a look at some photos of the Prior Five, then and now, go to our website at wvpublic.org. Hey, so do you have a passion you've recently rediscovered? Maybe during the pandemic? Tell us about it. Write us at InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org or on Twitter at inAppalachia. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Prior 5, Blue Dot Sessions, West Swing, and Dinosaur Perps. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. And a warm welcome to the newest member of our team, Bill Lynch is our new producer. You can find us on Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our episodes. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.